Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the first section of the genealogy in Matthew, the story behind the names helps readers piece together the puzzle of the book's teaching. But what about the last section? What can be understood from a list of names with no backstory? If you think of names personally, yes, they are useless. On the other hand, if you think of them as functions, if you examine their Hebrew roots, if you remember that there are no capital letters in the original languages, if you read the words on the page as text, the meaning of these names tells the story of God's victory in the Bible. That these names appear without infrastructure is par for the course. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 227 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Throughout our discussion of the genealogy, both Richard and I have emphasized the importance of each name. And last week, when we zeroed in on the function of the deportation to Babylon, we didn't spend any time discussing the name Jeconiah. So I want to start there today because this is where the Gospel of Matthew in the genealogy begins its pivot towards the Ezekielian reality of a Jerusalem not made by human hands and of a king who sits on the throne in that Jerusalem who is not under the boot or in service to any worldly kingdom and who is produced by the Lord's seed. It reminds me very much, Richard, of the beautiful monologue of the Lord in Job chapter 38 and 39, where his judgment against Job and against his friends is expressed in this beautiful concept of who made these things. Were they from the seed of man? Or did the Lord produce all of these wonders in creation? Was it the Lord who made creation work the way it does? It's majestic. It was such a beautiful passage in Ephesus school yesterday that I didn't bother to do any explanation. I just read it because it was self-explanatory. It was all this pent-up frustration with all the self-pitying and all the philosophical meandering and all the self-righteous condemnations of all the players in the story. And then suddenly God speaks and it's like a blast of fresh air that clears all the smoke away and we see things laid bare. This idea that's expressed in Job is not unique to Job. It's a scriptural teaching that we find everywhere. And since we find it everywhere, we know it's in Genesis because Genesis, as Father Tarazi explains, 
pulls the whole reality together scripturally and says everything that scripture says as an introduction. And in this specific case, in Genesis and in scripture, the point is that life comes from God and the only seed that can produce life is the divine seed of God's instruction. The name Jeconiah, which comes at this pivot point of the destruction of Jerusalem, means God will establish. As soon as Jerusalem is destroyed, the next king of Judah is the Lord will establish. You were talking about Job, Father. Yesterday I was having a conversation with my daughter, and she says, is there really some force greater than ourselves? And I said, look, I can testify that before you were born, there was life. And I'm pretty sure that after you die, there will be life. And there is always something that's going on beyond this. Now, what's interesting about Matthew, as we said in the very beginning in talking about this genealogy, he seems kind of like he's forcing things. You know, we talked about how there were some names that were left out that he could have included. And now this section, you know, you and I were beating our heads against the wall trying to figure out more about these names. And there's very little to be figured out. Some of them don't appear at all in the canonical literature. Some of them appear only one time as part of a genealogy in Chronicles, and we don't know anything about them. There's no story. So then, why does Matthew include them? Before, we were saying it's great, all these kings who appeared in First and Second Kings. We need to review the story about them. But when we have no story, what's the point? From the very beginning of this genealogy, Matthew has been making the case. This is an argument he's making in this chapter, believe it or not, that history follows a certain pattern according to the way that the Lord establishes his kingdom. First, you have from Abraham to David. The plan that began with Abraham was thwarted by the human being's desire for a king. Then it went from that king to deportation in Babylon. As soon as kingship was sent up, the only resolution was its destruction. And then finally, we enter into this last section, which goes from the beginning of that destruction to then Joseph, who is the adoptive father of Jesus Christ, where God begins the last stage of history, in quotes. This is the beginning of the last age. The establishment of Jerusalem is exactly what you mentioned, Father. It's the Ezekielian chapters 40 through 48 that appear as the heavenly Jerusalem in this way that is no place that ends with God is there. This is the place where God resides, and this is where history ends. And it bears repeating something that we learned from Father Paul in his own discussion of the scriptural Jerusalem. It's a heavenly city, but it's anti-utopic. And I want to take time yet again on this episode to review what that means. Typically, in philosophical and religious traditions, people look at the reality around them, and they say, this is terrible. Let's imagine a place that is different, a place that is maybe perfect or enlightened or somehow transcendent or better than what this is, some utopia. And then we project the utopia into the past, which is why people talk about the glory days of Byzantium or the glory days of Russia. There were never any glory days of Byzantium or Russia. There were in worldly terms, in the worldly sense of what glory means, but in scriptural terms, the more glorious men are upon the earth, as we hear during Holy Week, the more they incur the wrath of the Lord, because the Lord, through his teaching, scatters the proud in the imagination of their hearts. 
Bring more evils upon them, O Lord, we say during Lent. Bring more evils upon those who are glorious upon the earth. So you can't project your idea of a utopia into the paradise lost. At the same time, when you project an idea of your utopia into a philosophical abstract concept, you set up in worldly terms the same mechanisms of tyranny as though this is where we should be, this is what we can build, this is where you have this platonic ideal of a heavenly city, which is problematic. We have this idea of a perfect city. Now, anything that doesn't look like that city, we have to destroy. And this is my dispute with Marcus Aurelius. I don't consider him a noble emperor because he was Plato's philosopher king. He conquered the poor in order to establish a philosophical order. Scripture is not interested in politics per se. It's interested in rescuing the people under the boot of Marcus Aurelius. Because while he's building his heavenly Rome upon earth, his subjects are hearing the hopeful word of the kingdom of God in Matthew, which teaches them, as Paul says, to stay as they are, not to aspire to some utopia, but to look around them at the state of affairs in the Roman Empire today, not through the lens of the power of Rome, but through the lens of scripture, which emasculates Roman power by claiming the landscape of the empire as the reference for the scriptural teaching of the heavenly city, so that as a subject of Caesar in the Roman Empire, when you look around you, you see scriptural metaphor, you don't see the power of Rome. And so therefore, although the kingdom hasn't come yet, you realize the power of the kingdom where you stand in Paul's terminology as you are. Because any other approach will result in yet another kingdom of Judah and another tyranny, another oppression. Just so you understand how metaphor works, oftentimes metaphors that we use become detached from their original sense. So you may set up a metaphor that's related to a concrete thing, and then it takes on a life of its own. So for example, talking with your friends about your hard day is like an escape valve to let off some steam. The people who use that phrase, have they ever actually seen a steam valve on a steam engine? No, but they talk about letting off steam, even though they don't let off steam in any actual concrete way. The metaphor took on a life of its own, and so when people who are surrounded by the Roman Empire and they see the symbolism of the Roman Empire, once they are infused completely with scripture, then those metaphors that come from the life take on a life of their own and they become more important as the metaphor than the actual surroundings that they see. Let me give a concrete example before we jump in again to the Matthean text, Richard, from our discussion of Mark to illustrate the point I'm making about Ezekiel's anti-utopic Jerusalem the heavenly city. When a poor widow, a woman of the lowest status in late antiquity, puts less than a penny in the box in the temple, as a Roman citizen or as a member of the institution of the synagogue in Jerusalem, looking at that action through the eyes of the world, it's irrelevant and insignificant. There's no glory whatsoever in that act. And no one would ever take it seriously in human terms. But when suddenly you look at this gesture from the vantage point of the heavenly city, you realize that what is happening is glorious and majestic. You're not in a utopia. 
You're under the boot of the Roman Empire and you're facing a corrupt religious establishment. But all of that becomes irrelevant because the woman who is helpless in worldly terms is not helpless because she is doing the work of God's commandment and giving everything that she has for the sake of the common good. And that makes her godly. And that makes that gesture sacred and beautiful. And it makes the kingdom of God a reality in the midst of the muck of the way things go in human society. And this is an important cautionary word for those of us who are in despair because of the state of affairs in the world today. You don't have to be in despair. This is actually a gift that everyone's eyes are being opened to the way things are in the world. They were this way before the last two years. It's just that it was easier not to face it. But now that you see the corruption of the earthly city, this should be a reminder to you, a biblical sign that you have a duty to hear the word of God and to keep it and to practice it so that the reality of the heavenly city would rescue us from the tyranny of the muck in which we live. Some people would say that there's a difference between doing something out of duty and doing something out of grace. Here we have a list of kings who live under the boot of Babylon and then Persia and then the Hellenists. What grace is there for them? Well, if they do something they do out of duty, not out of grace, this is nonsense. When you act correctly, you understand the grace that was given to you in spite of the other circumstances you see. Otherwise, you live under self-pity. Someone who lives under self-pity cannot perform their duty because they have too many excuses not to perform their duty. If the widow believed, oh, poor me, what do I have? I'm nothing, I'm poor, look at what everyone's done to me, she doesn't give, neither out of grace nor out of duty. But once she is grateful for the might that she's given, even as a widow, this is where you have the majestic glory that you mentioned, Father, because out of grace she performs her duty. There is no separation. For heaven's sake... Have we read the epistles of Paul? Judgment is hope. Shame, duty, and obligation are grace. There's no difference. And this is why our kids are shooting up our schools. Because we're teaching them, oh, it's all about being nice and kind and grace-filled and loving. And we are not giving them any sense of shame, any sense of duty. We are not imposing, as we should, the burden of moral obligation. And they're lost. So with all due respect, I prefer duty and obligation and shame and burden as prescribed by the scriptural God over the empty, hollow niceties of those who would exploit us in order to serve the tyranny of their institutions. I'm not a subject of anything except the kingdom of the scriptural God, his word, his Messiah. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azur, Azur the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Ahim, and Ahim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. We're going to go through these names now and piece together the puzzle of the second component of the genealogy. Jeconias, we already mentioned the irony of that name. Sha'altiel is I asked God. So we have 
the Lord will establish, and then I ask God. And then we have Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the first king under Persia when the Persians were the ones who eventually let them go back to the land and build the new temple. Now, as Matthew was setting up these eras of history, the creation of the second temple is not a marker. There is Abraham, there's David, there's a deportation, and there's the father of Jesus. But the second temple's not in there. So the fact that he left that out, I think, is significant. The second thing is about Zerubbabel itself. Some scholars would translate this as sown in Babylon. Zerah, seed or sowing, and Babel, Babel, Babylon. Sown in Babylon. So God will establish, I asked God, and then sown in Babylon. You have a king of Judah who is called the one who was sown in Babylon. He has Babylon in his name and not God or Yahweh, which we see in the other names. And note, just going back to the name Sheltiel, which means I asked of God, note that there's a parallel with the first asking when the people asked Samuel for a king. We have another asking taking place, and the result is a reality in which the people are in exile, and there's no recounting of the construction of the second temple, which means now the correct thing is being asked for. There's an undoing of the folly of the people's request that the Lord provide them a worldly king. They come from the same root. Shaul is the one asked for, and Shaaltiel is I asked God. The same root appears in both names. Now, interesting, King Saul, Shaul, does not have God or Yahweh in the name. It's just asked for. Not asked for by God, not asked for by Yahweh, but just asked for because we know it's the people who asked for them. Then, once we have Zerubbabel, his child is named Abiud, which can be translated as the father of Yehud. And Yehud is the Persian name of Judah. So we have the father of Judah, and that's who appears next. So we have the father of Judah, but his existence depends on the one born in Babylon. It was the Persians that allowed the kings to go back to Yehud and set up a government in Yehud. Significantly, the people of God, so to speak, only functioned as much as the Persians allowed them to. Now in Isaiah, the king of Persia is said by the Lord to be his chosen person, his Messiah even, so his king, his anointed king, and he is the father of Judah. So it's a Gentile king, the king of Persia, which allows Zerubbabel, the one who was born in Babylon, to set up a kingdom and to set up his dynasty, which continues with the father of Yehuda, Abiud. Now, the name Eliakim in Hebrew, my God will raise up, implies that now we're going to raise up what God intended for his people, not what was being constructed in Judah, but a true faith, as it were, which hopes against hope in the city not made by human hands, which is what true Judaism is all about in the Pharisaic movement of late antiquity. Again, it was about moving Judaism out of the cultic temple and into the synagogue outside of Jerusalem where the faith was constituted not by ritual, but by instruction. That's what's happening in the New Testament. And I like to keep going back to this fact that Paul wasn't just a Pharisee, he was the Pharisee. So now you have a kind of true Judaism being raised up through this genealogy 
which was corrected by God in the destruction of what men build. And let me just reiterate a point that I made when we first started this chapter, that a lot of people want to say, oh, this chapter is just about Jesus came from this historical line of a bunch of guys. They want to make this historical. But one point that Father Paul always repeats with us is that we don't have capital letters in Hebrew. And even in the older Greek, we don't have capital and lowercase letters. And so a proper name and a common noun look the same. So if you read it in translation as opposed to just name after name after name, which is the boring way that we usually read it, then you hear the one born of Babylon or the one sown in Babylon begat the father of Judah who begat God will raise up. So listen again. The one sown in Babylon begat the father of Judah who begat God will raise up. It's telling a story name after name after name. These names are things we have to read slowly and carefully because this is the chapter we want to breeze through. People are much bigger fans of Matthew chapter 2 than chapter 1, but when you make these connections in chapter 1, you realize that Matthew is forming his narrative on a foundation of a very particular story about Abraham to Joseph that isn't just a list of guys with a few women thrown in. There's a specific story that's being told in chapter one. It's majestic. It's better than a Hollywood film. And it's so breathtaking. I don't know if Matthew's worth reading without the genealogy. It is so powerful. What a clever, ingenious way of summing up the content of the Old Testament for a Gentile audience. And at the same time, forcing that Gentile audience as Father Paula has explained in his discussion of Greek and Hebrew in the Old Testament, forcing a Greek to learn a Semitic language that was constructed in order to force them to think the way Scripture wants them to think in a language that symbolically represents the language of the Semitic peoples under the boot first of the Greeks and now the Romans. It's brilliant. You can't get through the genealogy without studying Hebrew. I mean, look, I'm just looking now, Richard, at the name Azor and the name Leazar. It's the same root that you find in the name Lazarus in the New Testament, which means help. So you see, first it appears just by itself, as you pointed out, similarly, where Saul doesn't include the name God. But now we have Shealtiel. Here we have first in verse 13, the appearance of Azor, which means help or helper. And then in verse 15, we have the appearance of Eleazar. God is my helper. God is the one who's restoring the kingdom. There's this progression, this heartbeat. The Lord came in and he saved you by destroying you. So please remember, judgment in scripture is hope, as I said earlier. Duty, obligation, burden. The unpleasantry of the manifestation of God's commandment for the people of Judah and the people of Israel, which leads to their deportation. This is the hope. That is why in order to bear witness to the wisdom and the power of God, you have to be exposed as foolish in the eyes of men. If you go any other direction, you're anti-scriptural and you're undermining what God builds and you're building again the things that God destroyed in Galatians. The statement that I made about duty and grace, it's built on a very clear line in verse 14. 
and Azor begat Sadak. Help begets righteousness. The grace that one receives begets the righteousness that one is able to perform. Grace precedes righteousness. And the name Ahim, those of you who speak Arabic, will immediately make the connection. Ahi means brother. So the implication is that this help and the righteousness that the Lord's intervention produces, you think that the deportation to Babylon is about unrighteousness because you can't sacrifice a burnt offering in your temple that you built. But Matthew is telling you, with all due respect, because the Lord has now judged you, now there is hope and there is the possibility of righteousness on his lips, not through your deeds. And if that's the case, it will produce brotherhood between the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, and more importantly, through that union, brotherhood with the nations. Now we're talking about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. May it come quickly. Eliud is the same root as we had with Abiud, which is Yehud. And you can translate it one of two ways. You could say Eliud, the god of Yehud. That's one way of translating it. Another way is Elihud or Elihod, which is my God is praised. Once you have the righteousness beget the brothers, then you have the brothers begetting God's praise or the God of Judah. We moved from Abiud, the father of Yehud, to the God of Yehud. And that's over the course of the past two verses. This is, if you will, the Judaism that is established by God. It's the divine city. It's not, again, what we make with our own hands to build our own structures. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, who means God is my help, it's the baptismal name in the Gospel of John. I love this name, Lazarus. It's so powerful because in the Gospel of John, when the Lord allows Lazarus to die in order to make a point, and everybody misses this when they exegete John, that Jesus obeys his dad in order to allow his father, through judgment and duty and the burden of loss, to make a point. Such a majestic text in John. And then Jesus goes... And he exploits that point with his prayer to his father, which is spoken for the ear of the addressee of the text in order to drill that point into their ear. But the name Lazarus means God is my helper, which means that Jesus was dependent on his father, Lazarus was helpless in the grave, and then the father acted to save Lazarus because ultimately the Lord promises that he will secure life for his people and for the nations if we depend on him, right? So this idea of help and God is my helper is all about the question of grace in Paul's letters. And that's why the next name on the lips of the author of the gospel is Matan, which means gift, which means grace. If God is your helper, if you are not looking to a foreign king to defend you against the king of Assyria, if instead you place your hope in the Lord, yes, Ahaz, Jerusalem may be destroyed and you may be sent to Babylon, but so what? If the Lord is your king, it doesn't matter if you're wandering in the wilderness. He'll provide the pillar of fire to light the way. He'll send you bread from heaven. Why do you need security? 
What is it you want from the earthly Jerusalem? What? Isn't the alternative much more hopeful? We have this beautiful movement because we had, as I said before, Abiyud, the father of Yehud, which can also mean my father is praised. We move then to verse 14, where we have Eliud, the god of Yehud, or God is praised. It goes from an earthly, fleshly line to the final line, which is that of God. Jacob, don't forget, has its own name. He usurps. Jacob was the seed of Isaac, but it's not Jacob usurping Esau anymore. It's now God usurping the fleshly line with the gift of Matan, he will usurp. And Jesus, for those of you who have already forgotten Galatians, is not a child of Jacob. He is a child of the promise through the line of Isaac. So the insertion of the name Jacob here is symbolic. It's not the Jacob from Genesis. It's a different character, but we know functionally it's the same character. It's a symbolic name. Otherwise, who cares who this Jacob is? What's the big deal? The father of Joseph. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So it's the functional Jacob who is the father of Joseph. And Joseph did not provide the zera'ah that impregnated Mary. This is of the utmost importance. Jesus is not from the line of Jacob. According to Paul and according to Matthew, he is from the line of Isaac, who was the child of the promise. Why? Because unlike Jacob, who tries to do it himself, who contends with God, who wants to build, who wants to achieve, who doesn't rely on his father Abraham or on the Lord for anything, who's impetuous and self-righteous. Unlike Jacob, Isaac was fully dependent on his father and on the Lord for everything. He never even left the land of the promise because the Lord was his helper. And it's interesting, and I emphasize this in my book when I deal briefly with the genealogy at the beginning, and I noticed it as a little kid holding the candle during the gospel, that we went through all of these names, and technically, Jesus' dad isn't in the line. Who provides the Zerah? This is the question that's posed in chapter 38 of Job. Who provides the seed? Anyone who knows Genesis sees, wait, Jacob begot Joseph. Wait, are we going back to the beginning now? Because Matthew has set this up very cleverly, where he began with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now we're just back to Jacob and Joseph. But instead of Joseph begetting Judah, who then begins this line of kings, which we had back in the beginning of this chapter, he begets Joseph, but then Joseph doesn't have any children except his adopted son, Jesus, whom he does not beget with his seed. So instead of Judah, we have Jesus. But if we're reading carefully, we should know that it went from my father is praised, the father of Judah, to the God of Judah, God is praised. So we no longer have Judah. The replacement for Judah, the person, is Jesus, the son of God. Mary... Insofar as women represent community, Mary represents 
not only a unified Judah and Israel. She represents, in a much broader sense, the unity of the kingdom of Judah and Israel with the nations, which is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is the movement of the Law and the Prophets. It's toward communion among all of the peoples of the earth who are all God's people. I have no idea why people talk about the genealogy as though it's making some point about how Jesus took flesh from all these people. I don't know what that means. That's not what I read here at all, Rich. What I see is that God loves the people in this list. I see that God promised Jacob that despite himself, he would care for him. I see that God promised Abraham that there would be life. I see that God has been mistreated by all of these people, yet did not renege on his promise. And the way he's fulfilling his promise is through their destruction for their sake, which is classic Bible. And that at the end of the day, in order for it to work, the thing that God gives, the gift, the grace, can't come from men. So I don't know what people are talking about. This is a beautiful text. It's beautiful, Rich. Every time we've seen in this chapter that God has to intervene, we have a woman appear. Tamar, Ruth, and now Mary. When God intervenes, it's through a woman. And so the hand of God looks like a mom. He just messes with all of these male egos systematically. It's very nice. And of course, in the story of the patriarchs, there's another parallel. Every time at each generation of the patriarchs, in order for life to continue, God has to intervene. Now, the women in the story are not positive characters. Everybody is suspect in the beautiful, beautiful story of Genesis. Everybody falls short. That's why in chapter 6, God questions whether or not he should have made man in the first place. Man in the broadest sense, male and female. And here you have, once again, as in the case of every generation of the patriarchs, the Lord intervening. But as you said, this time, it's the last time. So we missed Mother's Day with this episode, but I invite our readers to go kiss the hand of their mother, remembering that this is the hand of God. Take care, Richard. Christ is in our midst. He has never shouted. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.